Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Thank you so much, everybody. Welcome back. This is another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading scientists, clinicians, and industry experts to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Uh, today, we have a really exciting episode. I'm joined here with Dr. Rakesh Jetley. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the, sure. the work you do? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm based in Ottawa, Canada. And for the last 30 years, I've been a psychiatrist with, or actually I've been a physician with the Canadian Armed Forces. Started off as a primary care physician, flight surgeon. So I looked after sort of the day-to-day needs deployed to places like Rwanda, the Middle East. Um, went to post-grad, became a psychiatrist, again, eventually the senior psychiatrist for the military. So a lot of interest in post-traumatic stress, a couple of tours in Afghanistan. So I've come into sort of the mental health and trauma space, uh, you know, sort of honestly, so to speak. Wow, that's really fascinating background. And what an interesting time to be at the forefront of, of mental health uh, with everything that's going on in the world. I think Absolutely. we're at a really critical moment. Um, so I know you're doing some really exciting work in the field of psychedelic medicine and in, with regards to PTSD. If you could talk a little bit about that, I know we'd sure. love to hear about it. Sure, yeah. We, we've. I mean, again, I've come by it honestly. I'm a, I'm a clinician first, and I think mm-hmm. the toughest, toughest job in this whole space is being somebody that sits every day three feet across from somebody that's suffering um, with you know whether it's depression ptsd and so i've you know i and a lot of my colleagues have come to the realize that we've got fantastic treatments evidence-based kind of approaches to treat those suffering from ptsd whether it's rape whether it's motor vehicle accidents and in, in my specific case you know veterans exposed to horrific things during combat um, however, the evidence-based treatments are not effective all the time in everybody. And, and so as you get sort of, you know, more and more experienced in life, you start to switch and focus more on the people that aren't getting better, the people that are sort of partially responding and not responding. And that's led us to this search for, you know, novel treatments. Let's think out of the box. And so I've always been one to, you know, leverage technology understand the biological underpinnings of illness, you know, the, this this kind of idea. And and over the last, um, you know, I'd say easily 10 years, but it's obviously more than that, this resurgence in looking at sort of, you know, alternative substances um, has led us to looking at sort of psychedelics, you know, psilocybin specifically for our first trials in the treatment of veterans with PTSD. So we're focusing on veterans because of our sort of specific interest. And the key again with with post-traumatic stress disorder and why it's such a fascinating condition you know there isn't a single medication specifically designed for ptsd it's all off-label use we'll use antidepressants we'll use sleep medications antipsychotics things like this but the cornerstone of treating ptsd is the psychotherapy it's actually integrating the trauma somehow trying to make sense of it move past it you know whatever we we try to do with, with techniques and so the trials that we're going to do are sort of, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So these aren't traditional drug trials, pharma trials, but it's, it's, let's see if after the psychedelic experience, again, we'll start with psilocybin, does it somehow change the brain, make you more receptive to the ideas brought up in therapy, able to have a closer look at yourself, 
in the context of trauma and hopefully integrate that trauma and move past it. So that's kind of what we're doing. Small sort of call them pilot trials, you know, N of eight, N of 10 in different places, including, you know, we're looking at sort of, you know, the US, Europe and um, Canada for to start with. Our first trial will be in Leiden in the Netherlands, University of Leiden, which is one of the oldest universities in, in Europe. And, uh, and sort of basically learn from each other, all of the PIs and our scientific advisory board will sort of get involved and learn from each trial to just try to sort of refine this approach before we go bigger. That's really fascinating. And I know there's been some really uh, historic trials done using psilocybin for end of life anxiety uh, yeah. and, and for depression. So it'd be really great if you could give the audience a little bit of a snapshot into what PTSD sort of looks like for the suffering veteran and how psilocybin, you know, how do you foresee it really helping them? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question. I mean, really, if, if we best understand PTSDs or post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So it's, there's trauma, then there's post-trauma, then there's post-traumatic stress, and then the disorder is kind of just the psychiatric vernacular is getting stuck in it, right? So that's really the way to think about it. Lots of people experience trauma, Lots of people experience post-traumatic stress, but a minority, a significant minority, whether it's 8%, 10%, 20%, depending on the study, are going to get stuck in this thing called the disorder. And the simplest way to think about it um, is, is the traumatic event itself gets remembered too well. It gets stuck in the brain. And if you think about it, normal memory fades over time. You think in your life, the worst event of your life or the best event of your life, right? I mean, you're going to say, hey, it's my wedding day or my kid's been born. I'm going to remember this forever. But, you know, over time, things get forgotten. I don't think a woman would have more than one baby if she didn't if she didn't forget about the pain of the first birth, right? So it's kind of like, hey, somehow. So there's something about normal memory where over time, the best memories, the worst memories sort of fade. But these traumatic memories tend to get stuck. And so you're stuck with this memory, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Kandahar, where it has no place in the past and has no place in the future. So you're stuck with these memories. And the constellation of symptoms of these over-remembered memories lead to symptoms such as uh, re-experiencing symptoms because it's stuck in the present. It's not in the past. So you lose control over it. It's like something always being on your desktop instead of in your hard drive. So you have these intrusive thoughts where it keeps popping up. You're trying to just, you know, enjoy a walk with your kids or your dog. And all of a sudden you start to have this, this intrusive thought. You might have flashbacks where you feel like all of a sudden I'm back there again. Sometimes they could be triggered by something, but for, for a few moments or longer, you actually feel like I'm back in that scary moment again. You could have nightmares, of course, and the nightmares are often thematic nightmares, not the exact replaying, but it could be yourself in danger, your family, those kinds of things. So re-experiencing, and then because the re-experiencing is so distressing, we start to avoid things that remind us. We're afraid of being triggered. So we might start avoiding people that were there. We might start not being able to watch war movies, despite that being my favorite movie. We tend to isolate, withdraw from people because you're just constantly on edge. 
And then because those things are so scary, you don't want to be triggered again, you don't want to flashback, you become hypervigilant. You're always scanning the room. You, you know, you can know some of the combat vets that are ill. If they do get the, you know, get the ability to go to a restaurant or a coffee shop, they're the ones always sitting with their back against the wall. They're scanning, they're looking at each person coming in. Often people say they go to a shopping mall and they're kind of saying, if something was happening, where would I go? How would I get my family out of there? So it's this constant being on edge. So the cortisol is in the system. They're always, always on edge. And as we're finding now more and more, is that puts you at high risk for pain, high risk for arthritis, high risk for diabetes, high risk because the, the inflammatory and the neuroendocrine system is sort of always on edge. They can never sort of settle. So, so in a nutshell, that's PTSD. Trauma that gets over-consolidated, over-remembered. It's like a splinter of the brain. Get sort of an abscess around it. You have re-experiencing that's extremely distressing. So then you start to avoid, avoid all reminders. That avoidance starts to generalize. So you pull back from society. And then you're on edge and hypervigilance sort of around around it. And it's associated about 70% with depression. Sometimes there's substance abuse as well to try to numb the pain, the psychic pain that sometimes occurs with it. So it's a, it's a really awful spiral when it starts to become become chronic. So of course there's suicide, there's other other associated things that we that we want to try to sort of we want to try to um, break that cycle. Yeah, it's really complex pathology. There's definitely a lot going on there, um, and it's really fascinating to think that something like psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy must be so profound, must be so profound an experience to be able to, uh, you know, really address the core of, of an issue like this. So it's really exciting that you, you know, are, are embarking on this trial. I know that. Uh, researchers like Robin Carhart Harris they've uh, explored a lot into the default mode network. Uh, do yeah. you think that there's something in relation well, that's, to that? I, th with I think that yeah, I think there's definitely. I mean, so we've done a lot of work in, with some of my my research partners, like in London, Ontario, and other places where we've done a neuroimaging, MRI, fMRI imaging, like since the early 2000s. We've recently started doing work with the Meg scanner, which is the looking at the electrophysiology of the brain. And so it de and we've also done a lot of work with um, immune markers, inflammatory markers. So we're really trying to understand the biological underpinnings of this disease. And I think we need to sort of um, cast some light on the black box of mental illness. Like it's not just occurring in the brain, it's occurring in the entire body. And, and so there are, so one of our advisors is, you know, Sandy McFarlane from Australia who's talked about we should be talking about a staged approach to PTSD, the way we talk about cancers and what parts of the body is it affecting, not just mm. not just that way. So in terms of the neural networks, I think this is kind of going to be the money thing in the sense that there's one type of PTSD, for example, that's the associative subtype. So the classic movie version is this hyper-aroused, crazy guy that's taking drugs, that's violent, getting into fights. But about 30% have this thing called dissociation. There's prominent, you know, there's old books from Vietnam with the people with a thousand mile stare, you know, the person that's mm -hmm. just numb. And that person tends not to get noticed because he or she will be sitting quietly in the room just numb, but they're actually detached. They're, they're different. And by looking at the brain scans, if you remind people of their trauma, 
the typical stereotypical hyper aroused person, their brain lights up like a Christmas tree. They're having flashbacks, visual. But then the dissociative person's brain just goes quiet. And you can sort of see that people have been in the exact same trauma and they'll have the opposite, the opposite response. So based on some, you know, machine learning, some, you know, developing an algorithm, we can separate those types of PTSDs in the fMRI with over 90% accuracy, right? So, so there's really no doubt that there is a body change, brain change, not just mind, quote unquote, this mind brain duality. And so I think, yeah, based on the scanning, based on the, you know, whether it's um, PTSD, depression, and when you think about it, and again, you've mentioned a couple of things, the end of life depression, other depression, MDMA and PTSD, um, opiate addiction, alcohol addiction, smoking addiction. So, so th- when, when something seems to be working for so many different things, either it's snake oil or <laughs> you have to say, is there something common that goes on, right? right. And, and what, what I believe we'll demonstrate is at the, you know, maybe not at the, at the neuron level, but we'll look at that, but, but certainly at the network level, the salience network, default network, we might find a difference in um, the networks. We might find certain networks becoming sort of turned up, certain ones turned down. We certainly see in the pathology of PTSD, we see the reverse. We see strengthening of networks that shouldn't be there. We used to think years ago that PTSD was things like, you know, the amygdala, the, the part of the brain that senses danger, the amygdala's run amok, right? So it's being, or the hippocampus, the memory area, is defaulted. But over 15, 20, realize, we realize that's not really what it's about. It's about parts of the brain talking to each other, right? It's mm-hmm. okay to get scared when a car backfires, but the part of the brain that says, hey, relax, it's just a car backfiring, you're not back in Kandahar, that, that connection is missing. So, so treatment is reconnecting parts of the brain that may be detached, right? Mm-hmm. So that offers a lot of promise. The other thing, you know, we talked a little bit about medication and, and psychotherapy. You know, for the whole time that I've been teaching, and I'm a psychiatrist, so I prescribe meds all the time, is that the medication for PTSD, in my mind, quiets the noise to allow the psychotherapy to take place. You know, quiets the depression, helps you get some sleep, all of this stuff, so you can do the psychotherapy. And I think in the same way, because a lot of the psychotherapy being being done for with, with MDMA or psilocybin, the psychotherapy isn't really rocket science. It's not avant-garde, let's try something completely new. So somehow the same message that people have been giving you through cognitive behavioral therapy and the different therapies, somehow after the after the psilocybin experience, you seem to be more receptive to it which to me suggests, especially if it's working across different illnesses, to me it suggests there must be a fundamental change that's occurring within the brain that makes somebody more receptive to certain ideas that they perhaps were unable to either see or fully integrate, which is, which is to me extremely hopeful because I, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a concept that's a more and more popular concept in um, in the trauma world, and and you know really, you know Jonathan Shea, our colleague in Boston, brought it up back in um, post Vietnam, and this whole concept of moral injury, you know moral injury is sort of the 
persistent guilt, shame, maybe anger that someone feels when they've either participated in or witnessed a major transgression to your values, right? Whether it's, you know, what happens as a peacekeeper, not being able to act the way you want to act, or whether it's, you know, you, you were the guy that was supposed to clear the mines, but your buddies went over it and blew up this. So that's one of the really, really difficult, like guilt and shame are extremely difficult nuts to crack in trauma because obviously I'm ashamed. I don't want to talk about it. And our traditional therapies tend not to work as, as often. So how do you, as a guy, I'm not supposed to cry. As a soldier, I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm not going to allow myself to feel this way. I'm not going to forgive myself because I don't deserve to be forgiven. You know, I'm also curious about, you know, after the psychedelic experience, will a person be able to engage in that level of discussion with their therapist that perhaps because of all the defenses they weren't able to? So so this is really exciting stuff. I mean, you can tell how, how sort of uh, keen I am to sort of, you know, continue to explore this area. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I'm really excited to, to see what comes of your very groundbreaking trials. I'm sure it's going to be uh, really historic that you're, that you're taking um, you know, this medicine that's, you're right, in, in one way, it's really not so new, you know, in, in one light, it's been used for thousands of years in, in sort of this fashion, you know, so that was kind of led me to my next question is, what is the psychotherapy really going to look like? And since this is something that, you know, we have that hasn't been part of uh, traditional medical practice, how are the clinicians going to be trained? And so, so the beauty, the beauty of this, uh, and this is what I love, is that I've got sort of such a strong, such a strong group of colleagues that I'm working with that have, you know, you know, some people with specific expertise in trauma, some in the psychedelic space, some in both. And, and the, the beauty of research is to be curious, right? So, so there's more questions than answers at this point, right? Um, so there are different approaches. So I've got colleagues that are saying there's a, there's a type of therapy that's really become popular right now, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. Mm-hmm. And, and what it is, it's kind of an interesting piece. And often we'll use it in people that have been injured. You might have an amputation. You might have chronic pain. And what it is, is you often encounter a patient. And I'm sure there's people in your life, I mean, given what's, what's going on in the world right now, and they want the starting point to be um, where they used to be, as opposed to where it is, mm-hmm. right? And if you're sitting there saying, you know, like, I, I wish the world, I wish there was no COVID, I wish there was no this, we should be able to do this. So then they're almost in a grief type of state. They're mourning, they're in a loss, and it's really hard to access that person. So think about, um, you know, the difference between, you know, two, 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 soldiers, you know, men, women, you know, warriors um, have have amputation, double amputation. One person, you know, might be, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, and they have a lot of trouble getting there. The other person might say, hey, at least I can still hold my kids, at least I can still hug my kids, right? Right. To use a very Canadian analogy, the, the, the latter guy, you know, in a year, you'll see the guy or gal, they'll be on the Olympic sledge hockey you know, the, the Paralympics, they'll be they'll be skating on the thing, they'll just adapt to it and they'll do it. And the other person may go sort of spiral in a different way. So so it starts with an acceptance, right? So so if you if you make your starting point where you are, then you can move forward. But if you're stuck in that in that past, 
So, so one approach might be try this acceptance and commitment therapy. You know, other people, there's this psychology of the self, the idea of the self, how to identify the self. And when you go through the existential experience of, of the psychedelic, it does lead to a reflection of who I am, how do I fit into this universe, this existential piece. So there's this concept of self-psychology that might also be an interesting, interesting approach. Um, there's always good old cognitive behavioral therapy, which may, mm-hmm. may be the idea of, you know, this dysfunctional thinking may become more open. So I think there's, I think the, the, the beauty of, of this research is going to be that let's say it's uh, 14, 16 weeks. So we're not being prescriptive in terms of every site doing the same thing, but we will, we will be able to look at the timing of the doses. Uh, we will, we, we might even vary what, what medication to give. Um, we might look at, you know, week one, two, and three, or week one, five, and seven. Um, the types of psychotherapies will also vary, and we'll just continue to compete and say, hey, because we're all colleagues, like, hey, I found this to be really helpful. And maybe at the end, we'll come up with a blend because it's, it's so the moving parts are going to be the, the medication, the dosage of the medication, the timing of the medication, and the type of psychotherapy. Right. So it really yeah. is. That's why I'm saying we're curious. You know, we're, we're confident it's going to help, but we want to really demonstrate the safety and the efficacy of this. Right. So that, that's yeah. that's really important. piece. I'm just curious is the psilocybin that's going to be used. Is it a synthetic psilocybin uh, or is I think it... we're, we're, op- we're open to it all. I think we'll start synthetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just because of you know what what's uh, what's available, but I think right. we are open. I think it's it's oh you know this is the space, right? Like mm-hmm. I mean the whole. I think that people like natural. Like you ask most mm-hmm. people, would you like sure. something natural? That's the I mean the same thing with the you know cannabis and with right. fruit with you know I mean my orange juice is all natural. I mean, that's just kind of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I think physicians and, and medicine like synthetic because I know exactly what's in it. I know right. from dose to dose, it's going to be pure. And that kind of went out the window for me about 20, 20, oh God, 30 years ago. My brother, my brother, um, before he went into dentistry was a, was a biochem specialist and we were studying at U of T. And one time I, I, I met him in his lab and he, and he showed me a test tube and I, and I smelled it and it was banana smell. It was a banana. I could practically taste the banana. Mm-hmm. And he made that in a test tube. Mm-hmm. Right. So from that moment on, I've kind of this, this divide between natural, you know, natural being healthy and unnatural being unhealthy. I kind of said at the end of the day, they're molecules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're molecules right. that touch on receptors, whether they taste receptors, brain receptors. And I think, and I think, yeah, we'll look to see which one works better, which one doesn't, whether there's a difference. And I think that when we, when we eventually sort of, you know, when all of this sort of settles into the future, I think we'll, we'll sort of decide. So I, I think that at the end of the day, medication, you know, whether it's ketamine, whether it's MDMA, whether it's this, it's, it's, it's a molecule that's kissing on a receptor and having a post-receptor effect. That's the scientist in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's um, natural substances like opium <laughs> mm-hmm. that are extremely dangerous for some people, extremely helpful for some people. Then there's synthetic ones that are helpful. So I think, um, so I think we'll, we'll ideally do a, um, 
you know, will ideally um, have that as one of the variables as well. Sure. That's interesting. I know you, you, you mentioned cannabis and it's always interesting in this space when people draw parallels to cannabis compared to psychedelic medicine. There's obviously some similarities, obviously some big differences. Uh, I think one of the biggest differences are certainly uh, the way that psychedelic medicine is being met medicalized only um, yeah. as opposed to kind of a recreational market. And I wonder how much that has affected the policy as far as the military goes and the integration of psychedelic medicine now is a part of treatment there. Whereas, yeah, well, I, th- I think, I think, I think militaries are still a far, still away. Like I think, mm-hmm. I think, and I think for right, for good reason. I mean, I think that in many ways, um, the concept of knowledge translation is often, is often a part for the military. I mean, the, you know, active duty soldiers in, in most of our countries, um, you know, tend not to have sort of a chronic failed retractable illness. I mean, mm-hmm. often if the illness is, is not treatable and it becomes chronic, then people transition into the veterans VA systems and things. Okay. So so the research is, is probably best done in the VA system. And so just mm-hmm. to point out that our trials will be um, people who sort of have had at least one conventional treatment fail, mm-hmm. right? So, so it makes it makes it hard to treat people more because, you know, it's it's ethically be difficult to offer this as a first line treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, because just because there are first line treatments that do work. So, so I think that. Um, so I think I mean it's an interesting question to ask a Canadian because we have mm-hmm. decriminalized marijuana in the whole country. Right. So, it actually, so it's actually right. quite a different space. But, but, right. but to your point, but to your point, I think that in many ways in, in, in the marijuana, I think the recreational and medicinal confuse things a lot. I, th- mm-hmm. I think it was very different. As a, as a clinician, again, I'm in a country where marijuana is legal. Um, I, as a clinician, I actually don't care about that piece. Right. And so and it's very hard to sort of have that dialogue back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, creates a lot of cynicism as to whether people are, are, are treating. So here I'm interested. And the other thing about it, of course, is, is that, you know, whether, you know, the, the, the definitive studies for marijuana in terms of safety, efficacy for these conditions haven't been done. But let's say they're done. The big difference, of course, is, is that it's a chronic daily use of the substance over Absolutely. time. While this is looking like two or three doses, some good psychotherapy, and you're good to go. I mean, this is kind of what it's looking like. So so for me as a physician, I think it's more appealing, and I think it'll be more appealing to the medical community once we get these trials done and we show the safety and efficacy, because we're really talking about limited use with an indication with the safety data and all of this. And I think, um, you know, and, and I'm actually, I mean, I guess you've got, pure recreational at one end of the spectrum, pure disease, and then somewhere in between you might have this microdosing wellness kind of space, which is which is sort of, that could be the gray area. And I think for me, my interest is definitely on the far end of the spectrum, people that are suffering from illness, you know, whether it's substance use, abuse, chronic pain, mm-hmm. if we can get people off of opiates that are addicted, if we can help people with obsessive compulsive disorder that can be crippling PTSD. I think I'm definitely interested in that. Would I would I be somewhat interested in 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 the microdosing idea for certain sort of we call them neurotic or sort of you know, anxious people that are suffering to some extent. That might be about where I would draw the line. 
mm-hmm. the recreational piece, you know, to me, that's uh, a government legislation. Societies are going to decide that. And as a physician, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't really have much of an opinion on, on mm-hmm. that area. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I'm happy you shared that. Uh, I have to ask your opinion. I know there's a line of reasoning out there that, you know, there's a, a lot of people that are affected by PTSD, um, not just veterans and, and people in, yeah. in the military. Of course, although they're a very, very um, maybe overlooked demographic, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, I personally, of course, see the value of these trials being conducted in these demographics. However, there's definitely a line of reasoning that's like, the added benefit of the trials being conducted in first responders or veterans yeah. is that it can be positioned to win bipartisan political support, which is obviously the regulations and policy around these compounds is very important as well. So I'd yeah. be interested to get your opinion or your thoughts. Yeah. On so this. I've, I've come, yeah, I, myself and my, my sort of, um, my, my group of advisors, you know, all have experience for, I mean, I mean, uh, we're, we're all old, you can say we've got a thousand years of experience working with military and veterans. So we come from it quite naturally, and that's sort of our space. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One is, is the, there's enough evidence out there that shows sort of veterans, combat veterans in particular, tend to respond less well to the psychotherapies, medication approaches, sort of across the board. So so we've kind of picked a tough-to-treat population, right? We can speculate as to why. It might have to do with repeated trauma, the type of trauma. Um, it might have to do with adverse childhood events, which tend to be more common in military people, certainly in Canada and the U.S., than, than the rest of society. So we've picked a more difficult to treat group, which means, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere kind of idea with, with, mm-hmm. with our with our folks. Um, I think the political piece, um, it's not sort of in um, necessarily my, because this is the population I'd work with anyway. Right. I'm sure investors, I'm sure, you know, other people are kind of saying, hey, this is kind of a, a good space to be in because mm-hmm. if you demonstrate safety and efficacy in this group, and certainly, um, you know, our trial site in Alberta will open up to, to the first responders a little bit. That's already sort of in the works. So, um, you know, just like uh, just like um, the U.S. and in Canada, with you know, 10 years of fighting in Afghanistan, at one point, you know, the most dangerous place in, in the world was being a Canadian, most dangerous soldier was being a Canadian soldier in Kandahar. Mm-hmm. And, and that really led to a lot of um, outpouring of affection and caring about soldiers and veterans, which again, isn't always there in Canada compared to the US. It isn't, isn't sort of a default stance for, for Canadians. And um, so I think that, um, so we've picked scientifically, we've picked sort of a tough to treat group. Mm-hmm. And I think ethically, you know, we've picked the group that we as clinicians, scientists care about the most. But I do think that um, it's generalizable. And I think that, um, you know, people will take it and run. I think the message, the message is a positive one. Yeah. Because mo- most countries like their veterans, whether they like their soldiers or not, sometimes can vary depending on the government. But but I think, you know, veterans are a group that, that I mean, and I don't mean even um, feel sympathy for, but I'm more grateful for, you know, for what mm-hmm. veterans, the sacrifices they've made. Yeah, that's very deep insight. Uh, so you're, you're at the forefront of all this exciting research. I think it'd be interesting for you just to share with our audience what a typical day looks like for you, you know? 
Well, the day the day is is interesting because at this point, I mean, I'm sort of constant. I mean, we're not going anywhere, right? So this is right. where I am in my office, right. my home office. Um, but it involves it involves a lot of interesting discussions with our scientists. Um, you know, I'm part of the chief medical officer for this Madison Innovation Group, and, and mm-hmm. you know, my our chief science officer is kind of like a. He's at the molecule level all the time. I'm at the human. I'm a, I'm a human. I'm a physician, so I'm at the organ and the right. disease process. So it's kind of interesting just having these great discussions about what we could do and 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 sort of looking at sort of you know could we change the molecule to a shorter half life and and some of these sort of the different scientific things. Um, constantly on call with sort of whether it's Leiden or London, Ontario or Alberta, different sites, just in terms of. You know the excitement regarding you know as we're developing the protocols. Um, you know, sneak away, can't help but watch a little bit of the U.S. election news, which is hard, yeah. hard, hard to kind of avoid. And and, <laughs> and I so you know I, I'm in touch with my with my U.S. colleagues, and I just right. you know I just, you know my heart goes out to the fires in California and some of these yeah. things. So so it really is it really is a um, you know all the discussions that we had today you know about. You know, do we do you know natural versus versus the synthetic, and you know, so those discussions we're having on a daily basis in terms of supply. Um, you know, we've got we've got the group in Leiden, and so just just trying. So the next the next step is you know we're going to get our scientific advisory board all to, so together and just sort of brainstorm about the protocols that we have in place, and yeah. not to the point where we're going to try to bully everybody to do the same one, but just in the sense of understand what the other folks are doing and maybe borrow a little bit or just say, Hey, that's interesting. You do that. We'll do this. And let's, let's talk about it afterwards. So it really is a, I mean, it's, it's, it's the pleasure. I mean, so I've, I've never been, um, I've been very lucky. I've never been the bench scientist. I've never been the person that's sat in, you know, since, since university, but I've, I've always thought of myself as being able to bring people together for a common cause. And, and that's the beauty of this. The beauty of this is to bring, you know, a lot of established universities together, a lot of scientists together, a lot of, you know, really, really good minds together and motivating them and throw a little bit of money into it. And, and mm-hmm. then at the end, we'll produce something really exciting. That's really awesome, man. And that's, that's a really interesting thing that's come out of this pandemic. Uh, us being at home, we've connected, you know, through these, through these digital yeah. platforms and we've just shared so much, so much more insight, so many ideas. Yep. We've been so creative and same right over with the team at Microdose has been really incredible. You know, um, we have our mushroom conference coming up and we have our yeah. psychedelic capital tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, it's really great to be able to bring minds together and have these conversations because mm-hmm. really innovative things come out of them yeah. and, you know, humans are really resilient species. So it's, yeah. Cool to see us adapt in that way. Yeah, and and we're going to get through this, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's that's what you tell your kids. That's what you tell your parents. So, I mean, you have to believe it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as you come towards the end of our discussion, I think it'd be really interesting for you to talk about where you see the the industry and and more specifically your research going over the next five ten years. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's a great question. I think you know, like where I come from is is I believe. Like and I think again, if we go back to the marijuana space, is that the industry tried and is still kind of trying to move forward without the physicians engaged. 
right? Like it's it's like screw them; they're never going to understand it. They're never, be, you know. But I I don't think you can you can advance in the Western world with medicine without having MDs in the medical world involved, right. right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, somebody's got to prescribe it, somebody's got to believe in it. So, so what I really want to do is I want to be very very deliberate. I want to do safe safe controlled studies. I think uh, I, I think we're doing that. I think when we're looking at Hopkins and you know Leiden and you know King's College and Imperial College, and we're looking at legitimate legitimate places, and not to mention the universities in Canada. Um, so I'd like to see things moving in a very deliberate, safe, no shortcuts through the regulatory bodies, through the REBs, to really demonstrate the safety and the efficacy. Right. So, mm-hmm. so moving away from sort of you know the the farmhouses in 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 Vermont or the ranches out west, and you know I think I think there's always going to be that sort of underground movement, which again I mean I think when people are suffering and they're going to seek their help, I mean I can't criticize people trying to get better, whether it's you know going to Costa Rica or or whatever it is, sure. but I think to make significant change in society. We have to sort of play by the rules of the scientific and the medical establishment, right? I think that's right. good. So, so we'll be conservative, we'll be deliberate, we'll be conservative, we'll be deliberate. Um, I think that um, where the space is going to go, I think um, we are going to get more and more indications. I think we will do this. I think we'll refine. Um, I think the challenge is going to be is once things become really definitive, it's going to take a long time for the um, social work, um, psychology programs across the world to train people in psychedelic psychotherapy. So I think we'll have institutes to sort of get people up to speed to train them because I, I, I really don't think, um, you know, maybe outside of the microdosing, I don't think we're going to get away from take this medication and feel better. I think there's still going to be a psychotherapy piece to it. Mm -hmm. I think we're also going to have to cross the threshold with with the pharma development of shorter half-lives. You know, I mean, right now, four or five, six hours, you know, I mean, that's going to be a a challenge. And I know with some of the psychotherapy, I mean, you know, people have stood up at conferences and saying, how the hell are you going to have 30 hours of psychotherapy in three days with two therapists. I mean, who's going to pay right. for that? I mean, so that whole idea of wouldn't it be nice if we, we developed a formulation where you can take it a half hour in, in the waiting room and then it lasts about an hour and a half, you know, relax afterwards and then leave. Like, so I think we're going to have to play with sort of the formulations, the dosages. Um, there's some really interesting um biochemistry that's going to happen to sort of refine side effects, sort of minimize the bad trips, maximize the good experiences. So so I think it's going to be at all levels. I think the bench scientists are going to be busy. I think the clinicians are going to be busy sort of refining and, and perfecting the psychotherapy. Um, and I, I, I really think I really think this is a game changer. And for PTSD, um, there really hasn't been like I said, there hasn't been a drug specifically developed for PTSD ever, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, we use old antihypertensive medications to get rid of nightmares. I mean, we use Nabilone, which is a you know synthetic sort of THC to get rid of nightmares. So we've just borrowed, borrowed medication from other places. So to have specific treatments for PTSD is exciting. I think for, for depression, 
I mean, since Prozac, which is probably before you were born. I mean, we haven't mm-hmm. really had a yeah. breakthrough, new treatment, new approach to depression since um, since the you know late 80s, early 90s. So I think this stuff is potentially game-changing. I just think that we need to do it smart, deliberately, and be patient. I think that's that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, that was going to actually be my last question is what are some of the things that we should avoid, you know, uh, moving forward? And what are some things we can learn from the 60s and 70s? And I think you touched yeah. on a lot of those points. I think I think avoid hyperbole. I think mm-hmm. be deliberate. Right. I think be safe. Like our, our trials are going to be, quote unquote, hospital based. Mm-hmm. We will do them. We're not going to say in the middle of a psych ward, but we're going to find whether it's a sleep lab or a quiet right. place. We're not going to have people, you know, going home after eight hours. So we're going to have them sleep in a safe mm-hmm. place. We're going to, you know, do the first session the next morning. Make sure they're comfortable. Check on them every day. I mean, the whole, the whole idea is is that we need to learn. And I think safety and efficacy are are you, you can't actually say one without the other. I mean, look, mm-hmm. at, we're in the process of this vaccine development. You know, if if a vaccine immunized seventy percent of people but killed ten, that's mm-hmm. not good enough, right? I mean, so we right. need to have safety and efficacy, and we can't actually say the two terms separately. So you know, we're gonna you know ethics review boards for all the studies, you know, hospital based, make sure it's safe, and 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 not sort of be um, be sort of lackadaisical and avoid the shortcuts, avoid the temptation of shortcuts. I think. I think that's really the important thing that we need to do. Oh, I agree. Uh, I like to always give my guests the last word. You know, if you have a message for our audience, just the world at large, anything you wanted to share, uh, the floor is all yours, Dr. Jetley. Well, I think I think I thank you for this platform. I think I'll just ask people to be patient. You know, research takes time, research development, design, but but trust us to do it right. Mm-hmm. It may not be as fast as you want, but it's going to be right and it's going to be deliberate and that's going to have the lasting effect that could sort of, you know, change, change the way we help people that are suffering, which is the ultimate gain. Yeah, that's really awesome. Thank you so much for your time and no for problem. coming on the show, Dr. Jetley. I, I really okay. appreciate it. We look forward All to having time. you on again next time. Thank you. Right. And everyone, that's another episode Cheers. of the Sci-Fi Podcast. This is Dr. Rakesh Jetley and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you so much. All the best. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you, Dr. Jet Lee. I appreciate okay. it, man. We'll talk again soon, okay? All I right. really, really appreciate it. Thank All right, you. Buddy. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.